The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich, and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. The surrender of Lee's and Johnston's armies that brought about the end of the Civil War occurred 150 years ago this past April. We all know that's what happened in 1865, which makes the campaigns of that year especially challenging to study, like reading a mystery to which you already know the ending or watching the fourth quarter of a 35 to nothing football game. It's hard to suspend one's knowledge of the outcome tried to appreciate the emotions and actions of those who were there and who didn't know when or where the war would finally end. The authors of Calamity in Carolina, the battles of Averisboro and Bentonville, March 1865, have taken that challenge, and we'll talk with one of them, Philip S. Greenwald, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you as is so often the case from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university or the history department or the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences or any of the other constituent campuses of the University of North Carolina system just for me, and I know my guest will likewise speak only for himself 
it's important to be legally correct. Here on a cloudy, rainy night in May of, no, it's June already, June of 2015, the weather's much nicer, I imagine, in Oklahoma City, where tonight the University of Michigan women's softball team plays the final game of the Women's World Series against Florida, and I'll be dashing out of here at 8 o'clock to see if the Wolverines can pull out another national championship. But in the meantime, we have an hour to talk about Civil War history. I'm still uh, recovering in a good way from the delightful trip with the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, uh, this hallowed ground tour for 2015, May of 2015. Last week, uh, I spent the last week traveling through Virginia and across Maryland and into Pennsylvania and back down to Virginia going to a series of sites with uh, a group of interested people, interested and very interesting people, uh, as we saw a wide, wide range of Civil War sites in more or less chronological order, which very strongly added, in my view, to the impact of the tour. We started at Manassas, went uh, the next day to Harper's Ferry and the same day to Antietam. We continued on ambitiously to Gettysburg that night and the next day got a tour from a licensed battlefield guide. And those those guides are, uh, are, are something else. They have to know so much detail about the battle, but the good ones don't get lost in the detail and can help tell a larger story as well. And uh, uh, Jim Martin, our guide, did an outstanding job uh, showing us what happened there on the first day and second day at Gettysburg. It was interesting that we started our trip there from Oak Hill near the Peace Monument. If you're familiar with the battlefield or have been there recently, typically the first day tour starts right where the fighting began on McPherson's Ridge near the uh, Buford's Cavalry position. And it was quite instructive to start at a different place where you could see from a distance what that position looked like. I thought it was uh, it was different, and I, I enjoyed it and learned something from it. Uh, we also visited the Shriver House in Gettysburg, which I highly recommend, a, a civilian house, now a museum, where the tour gives you a flavor of what it was like for civilians during the battle. And that was a change this year. At almost every place we visited, certainly at Gettysburg, uh, the people giving the tours or guiding us on the battlefield or otherwise talking about it mentioned the civilian experience. I think maybe there's more consciousness of it today. Maybe it's just something we hadn't bothered to think of. But the uh, the after effect of a battle, the, the tens of thousands of dead or wounded men and animals all compactly strewn about near this small village of a few thousand civilians and no no FEMA, no federal agency to go in and help clean up. The people of Gettysburg had to do it themselves and that was brought home to us uh, repeatedly and, and very interestingly. We walked the field, the Pickett's Charge, always uh, uh, an experience that teaches you something you can't get out of books in terms of lines of sight and uh, the, the sense of what the approach could, what the approaching soldiers could see, that was a, a very useful moment. The next day we went on to Fredericksburg and at 
uh, Chatham, the mansion across from Fredericksburg that overlooks the town, we had a, a private audience with John Hennessy, who was a guest on the show two weeks ago, the chief historian at the battlefield there, and he gave us some insights and ideas and things to think about that were really stimulating and interesting. It, it, it's this this week long tour is not just one dang battlefield after another, but the most interesting people, the battlefield guides, uh, the park service people like John Hennessy, really make it uh, come alive. We went on, we saw, we drove down to Richmond after seeing Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. The next day, took a quick side trip to the monument at Yellow Tavern where Jeb Stewart was fatally wounded. We went to Pamplin Park. If you've never been there, that is really uh, a fascinating Civil War site, privately owned but magnificently managed, uh, a great museum, uh, interesting piece of the Petersburg battlefield. Definitely worth your time to go see that. And we did one thing different from past years where we usually would make a side trip to the peninsula because there was, I think, an interesting restaurant out there. I'm not quite sure what the purpose was otherwise. But the restaurant was closed. This year we changed the itinerary, went to Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. And when you do something for the first time, there's always uh, a snafu or two. Our bus was much too big to fit into the narrow paths of Hollywood Cemetery, so we debarked and walked around and saw a few interesting uh, monuments, including the Soldiers' Monument, the giant stone pyramid. Uh, many of the the other guests asked me questions about it that I could not answer, and I did a little research since then and discovered it's the largest monument to war dead anywhere in North America at this point. Uh, and was built shortly after the war by the ladies Hollywood Cemetery, <coughs> excuse me, Cemetery Association. Uh, but I still don't know enough about it. I'll have to go back and, and look further. Uh, and next year we'll figure a way to to make that part of the trip work more smoothly. But there was so much more. Uh, we went on the the final day to uh, traveled out west past the Sailors Creek uh, State Battlefield site and then on to Appomattox. At Sailors Creek, the, the ranger there was delighted to see us. I don't know how much traffic they get there, and he was thrilled and just spilled out information on the engagements there, so much so that I admit I kind of tuned out. There there was just one corps and one brigade and one division, too many to keep track of, and we'd been doing this for a week. But he certainly knew his stuff. And we continued on to uh, the Museum of the Confederacy in Appomattox, Another cannot-miss site on the Civil War Trail, not just artifacts like Lee's dress sword or the uniform he was wearing at Appomattox. And they have a they make a strong case that the uniform they have is the actual correct uniform. But again, the people, the education specialist who talked to us, gave uh, account of how her own family had lived there for generations, going back before the Civil War and their experiences at the time and how she became interested. and That's what really sticks in one's mind. We ended up at the uh, Appomattox Courthouse National Park site, and uh, you, you can't study the Civil War finally without ending up there and seeing the restored McLean House. And There were more visitors there than a lot of other places. Uh, that, that 
certainly draws people not just being the sesquicentennial year, but it, it's a, a place that calls out to be visited. So, a wonderful trip. While we were there, you, you can uh, buy a printed parole pass. The, the U.S. Army printed tens of thousands of paroles for the Confederate soldiers so they could leave and not be shot at by other Union soldiers or arrested as deserters by other Confederates. So you can uh, support the park by having them print one up for you. And uh, one of our group was given uh, a parole pass by another uh, another of the travelers. Uh, this one gave free passage back to the state of Alabama, which was meant ironically because it was given to someone from San Francisco who uh, was repeatedly astonished at the southernness of the things we encountered. And some of it was pretty darn astonishing, I will say. Uh, but everybody was, was wonderful on this tour. It was really fun. There were a lot of lawyers on the bus, but that didn't stop us from having a good time. Uh, I don't normally name my favorite guest on a tour like this because it's invidious to the others, but here the uh, clear winner was uh, Sarge, the service dog who accompanied one of our travelers who had been wounded in the Vietnam War. Uh, Sarge never complained, never made uh, uh, any demands, was always ready to go on any battlefield, uh, the ideal traveler. But there were so many interesting travelers. One was a veteran infantry scout from World War II, one was a former Marine officer, many people with no military background, but just an interest in the Civil War. And I, I really can't say enough for how interesting the questions and conversations were that we had all week. So if it sounds like I'm trying to sell this to you for next year, the answer is yes. Start saving your money and get in touch with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Mark Bielski, who accompanied us, who is himself a, uh, a historian uh, of the Civil War and other eras, helps run that show there. And he and his people improved on what was already a great tour by Matterhorn Tours. They they made it better, and I'm sure they'll make it even better next year. So if it sounds like I'm trying to convince him to hire me again, yes, I'm doing that too. But if you're listening to this and have an interest in the Civil War, it's a great way to spend a week and uh, if you've done something like this before it's an even better way to spend a week it never it, it does not get old uh, doing it uh, repeatedly but doing it once is, is something you don't want to miss so enough on that let's move on to where we're going next week and I've, I've talked a little longer than I normally do at the start but I really wanted to share that next week our guest will be uh, Richard Summers one of the deans of Civil War history. Uh, astonishing, I've not had him on the show up to now. His uh, classic book, Richmond Redeemed, is just being reprinted in a 25th anniversary edition. So he'll be on next week, and then we'll talk all about that. Today, however, we're talking about the end of the war, uh, a book titled Calamity in Carolina, the Battles of Averisboro and Bentonville, March 1865. It's part of Savage Beatty's Emerging Civil War series, and it's written by Daniel T. Davis and Philip S. Greenwald, and I'm happy to have Philip S. Greenwald with us tonight, if he's hung on through that long introductory section. Uh, Mr. Greenwald, are you there? Yes. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Oh, well, welcome to the show. I apologize for going on at such length, but... Uh, uh, your book itself is a battlefield guide in part, so you know how impressive it is to go to these sites. 
Um, yes. Yeah. Let, let me start with that. Tell, tell me about your background in uh, uh, in, in this field. Well, uh, both um, I guess my background goes all the way back to uh, your prize to where you uh, your parents and my father is a big Civil War enthusiast um, and told my mother at age three that my son's going to go to a Civil War battlefield before he ever goes to Disney World. And so um, from then on, um, it was some place that uh, we'd always, my dad and I would always check out to through middle school and high school and then went to college and uh, studied history. And my advisor told me that there was something called uh, park internships. So I worked at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, actually under John Hennessy and Greg Mertz, two great historians, and um, and thought a park service career was for me. And uh, yeah, lucky went back and got a graduate degree in American history, early American history, where I studied uh, Maryland military history as my uh, kind of graduate project. And, and so the, with that, um, a few of us realized that in the Civil War community that um, there was a need to kind of give people that first book, that foundation. And so it actually started with the blog Emerging Civil War that Chris Mikowski and uh, Christopher White, two other great historians, um, started. Both had worked at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania and asked me to come on board. And that's kind of where it all kind of snowballed from. It seems like there's a real center of gravity forming around this, uh, the Emerging Civil War blog and the, the series of uh, books uh, that Savage Beatty publishes. You mentioned uh, both Chris Mikowski and Chris White, who uh, we've had on the show before and have written books in that series and are involved in this. So I'm I'm curious about that. There's there's obviously also a connection through uh, uh, Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania. Uh, so is well, here's what we're going to do. We'll take a short break, but here's the question I'll pose to you you can think about during the break. Um, is there some individual, is it someone like John Hennessy or uh, Robert Crick or someone else who is, is forming a, a cult-like mass of Civil War devotees who are producing all this scholarship all at once and taking over the Civil War world? It's a big question. Think about it for a moment. We'll come back and talk more with our guest, Philip S. Greenwald. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm talking today with Phil Greenwald. He's co-author of Calamity in Carolina, the Battles of Aversboro and Bentonville, March 1865. Uh, He's co-author of other works as well, but this is one we're talking about at the moment. It's part of the Emerging Civil War series, which is a rapidly expanding series of books published by Savas Beatty. And Phil, the question is, what what's going on? It seems like I get a new one of these sent here uh, every week, or there's something happening in the blog, or there's some connection. Uh, everybody seems to know everybody. What what's What's up with this? Well, the uh, Emergency Civil War blog uh, was basically created by three guys, uh, Chris White, Chris Mikowski, and a guy named Jake Struhelka, who all um, was working at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania National Military Park. And one evening, they thought there was not a venue for a newer or younger or a next generation of Civil War historians to kind of break into the field. And if there was something we can use with modern technology, like the blog uh, set up, then uh, they, we would be able to get that voice out and kind of start getting our, our foundation built. And so that's where our kind of emergency civil war started, and a lot of us have kept up through social media. And so um, as it expanded, more and more of us wanted to get involved. And um, through these friendships, it grew and kept growing until we got a course stable of uh, us civil war historians that had worked in battlefield parks or state historic sites or had been associated in the public history or even in the academic history field. And so uh, from there, uh, Chris White and Chris Mikowski had uh, been working on a publication for Savage Beatty, and they're the ones that pitched the idea for the Emerging Civil War series because there's so much great literature on the Civil War, but what's that first book that someone should pick up if they want to learn about this battle or this action or this instant? And so that's where the Emerging Civil War series really found that niche is here's the book that not only give you enough information if you don't know anything, get you started, or if you know something, I'll give you a little more. But also, what's very important is get you out onto the site, out onto these battlefields on this hollowed ground, get you to experience the sites and understand what these fields meant. And then also, if you're interested, provide uh, a suggested reading so you can go into that next level and read more in depth. And so it really got started with a few conversations, um, and it's kind of snowballed from there where we've got, uh, I mean, we're all great friends. We all kind of, uh, we get together at least once a year, the whole, whole blog and go hash out what the next year is. But a lot of us, I mean, any chance we get meet up, go out to a battlefield and talk about, um, it's just great to be out in the field and with friends. My wife knows I'm not getting in trouble because she knows I'm not at the house and probably out on the battlefield. <laughs> That's, it's a good, good, uh, evocation to have for, for that reason. The, um, I know, uh, that up at Fredericksburg, the Park Service itself, John and I talked about this online two weeks ago, is uh, engaged in social media, and he sees that as a really important 
future avenue to getting people interested in history in the Civil War in particular. Uh, so, it, again, I'm just curious why why Fredericksburg might have been the epicenter of this, if it was any one person, or do you think that's just where you guys happen to connect? Well, uh, one of the um, big draw. I mean, I drew a lot of us to Fredericksburg initially. It was Greg Murphy, John Hennessy doing the internship program, that, and so a lot of the a lot of us started as college students that came down for the summer and had a connection there, um, or um, had been hired back as seasonal rangers. There was a second or third year that we were all at the park, and so we kind of lived in park housing together or hung out together, and so. Um, it was kind of these connections right there. So it's really facilitated, I guess, by John Hennessy and Greg Mertz, who year in, year out, have now done the, uh, this internship program. And it's called on, and now I think Richmond Battlefield and Harpers Ferry and Antietam, Gettysburg, and other ones have picked it up. But it's a way for, I mean, for me, it was an instance, what I do with a history degree, I'm halfway through school, do I get my teaching credentials or do I go public history? And it really, in those three months, solidified what route I wanted to take. So I think that was the big draw was that there was this opportunity to spend the summer working as a ranger in an uh, internship on the battlefield, living on the battlefield, giving tours, and um, just learning from guys like Greg Mertz and John Hennessy, who if you go to any NPS battlefield in Virginia, you're going to probably find one of their two names on something. Well, that that is a great program that they do. Uh, Let me turn to the the book here. My first question uh, came when I saw the title Calamity in Carolina. Uh, I I see the alliteration, but then I thought, why not triumph in the Tar Heel State? Uh, When you call it a calamity, one one side's calamity is another side's victory. Uh, What's the thinking behind this approach? The uh, we a lot of the uh, books on the ECW series, we tried to find quotes um, that um, have kind of a uh, the catch factor. And then Hurricane from the Heavens, for instance, was a quote by a Connecticut soldier at Cold mm-hmm. Harbor. Um, Calamity in Carolina was really felt that, um, and from a point of view, it was actually uh, when the title was established, I was, uh, way Dan Davis, Daniel Davis, and I set up the book writing as we split it between sectional lines. And it's kind of ironic because he's from Virginia, ancestors fought in the South, but he writes the northern part. I'm from Baltimore. My ancestors fought from the uh, U.S. Army, and I wrote the southern part. So I guess our, our ancestors up there are probably not too happy with us. But uh, it was, I figured, like, it's a calamity in Carolina in so many ways because, for once, for the South, of course, um, it is a last-ditch effort to resist the bombing that Sherman's Army group has become. Also, that it is a calamity for the um, North in a way because it is, uh, overshadowed of these uh, and what happens in Virginia, what happens with the unfortunate assassination of President Abraham Lincoln and the end of the war. These guys who have literally marched and won the war, um, and I'm a big believer the war is won in the West, that they kind of, it, it's a state, uh, if Bentonville is a state site, uh, Bennett Place is a state site, and most people think the Civil War ends in Appomattox. And so that's kind of how um, we came up with the the title and I mean, the alliteration got helped too. So these battles that that you look at here, um, uh, I, I said something like this in the introduction. There's, it, it takes an effort to suspend one's 
disbelief uh, that you don't know the ending. That that uh, it almost makes it more poignant, perhaps, knowing that that this can't possibly succeed for the Confederates. Uh, that they still make these these dramatic and and uh, valiant but doomed efforts. Does that? Uh, did you think about that as you're writing? Does that overshadow everything about March of 1865? That it's we're in the two-minute warning here. It, it does, and um, especially when you start to look for um, the, trying to bring up the southern sources and go into the writings and letter writing. And one of the major players, of course, is Joseph Johnston, and uh, he's hesitant or reluctant initially to take that position uh, with the Army of the South, the reconstituted Army group of the different elements still in the field until Lee kind of informs them that they're, they're not looking for miracles. They're looking for, they would love a miracle, of course, but they, well, they're not going to blame him for loss. So Johnson's very big on his reputation. And as you dig more into it, it is tough initially to um, divorce yourself because you do know the next stage and uh, you do know the next day and what happens. But at the same time, you see, uh, what we try to pull out in the book, and especially what's most pointing to me, is that the, the Confederates um, that char, and I'll use one instance, there's a uh, North Carolina junior reserve soldier that writes about the last uh, four, last forward advance or charge of the Army of Tennessee. And he says they come out, as they've done on many a field, and I'm paraphrasing here, that you can see that they line up and they attack with the same prowess, but he said at the same time, it's bittersweet because you can see how close the regimental flags are and realize how decimated their ranks are. But they still slam into the Union Army with the force of a small band of uh, compatriots, and they temporarily stall the Union advance. And so what I try to do is try to write that, hey, bring out these sources that these soldiers are writing, that things are going bad, but Johnson's back in command, and Johnson has steered us well, or that, hey, we still we have the hardcore left. So... It is tough because you do know what goes on, but you want to get the people in that moment on that battlefield and realizing that the Confederates are looking for just one chance, one opportunity, one stroke of luck. And that's when, um, that's where I think you can kind of divorce yourself from what you do now that happens next. And it's not utterly fantastic when you put it that way. When we were last week driving, uh, towards Antietam and, and discussing Special Order 191, uh, the idea that an army would write its entire top-secret plan on one piece of paper and then lose that piece of paper, and that the other side would find it, uh, any novelist who wrote that, you would say, uh, go back and try again. That's just too ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yet, yet that's exactly what happened in 1862. So why couldn't something equally fortuitous and crazy lucky happened in 1865. It, I, I guess it makes it plausible that the, the Confederates might might get a miracle, or they can at least hope for one. And, and uh, that's a I mean, great point, and that's one of the writings that, uh, and one of the interests to mind is why the soldiers continue, and the Confederate Army continue to fight in late 64, 65, don't they? We don't want to say all the time they see the writing on the wall, but if you start reading their letters and diary accounts and what they're writing home, yes, a lot of them are becoming disenfranchised, but there's still a hardcore group that's, and for instance, Robert E. Lee's still here, and if Marsh Roberts will lead us, we can still have victory. Or some will use religion. It's always darkest before the dawn. Or others realize now that the hardcore group is here, we can 
finally, um, and we get out of these trenches around Petersburg or we get out in the open field, we can still, we've never really lost and we can still defeat the Union Army. So you still have, I mean, these diehard rebels or this committed group because of the belief they have in their military leaders. And that's why Johnson is put back in command in, in Carolina, because he does have that support and he does have that name recognition for the last elements of the Army of Tennessee. Do you think there was, can you conceive of anything Johnston could have done that might have affected, not not won the war, but, but affected the outcome of the war uh, in this campaign? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, and that um, could have happened if, uh, once again, uh, Braxton Bragg uh, might not have been there or followed his orders. Honestly, on the first day at Bentonville, he had a chance to wreck um, at least one wing of the Union Army, and um, he needed to um, hit hard and strike hard and hit quickly, and uh, orders got befuddled, and communication broke down, and things lagged behind. And so that instance now, would that have changed the word now? But that was the, that was the chance that Confederate armies always look, try to wait till the Union Army can separate themselves or divide themselves and attack it in separate. And that's what Lee looks at in North Adams when they come across there at the Ox uh, Ford uh, with Grant's army. And that's a chance slips through his finger. And on March 19th, that slips through Johnson's hands right there. Um, and after that, Johnson, you can see that he, he's always gets the recognition that he retreats and he retreats mm-hmm. and he retreats. Well, in Bentonville, he sticks around hoping for another chance. And on March 21st, he almost completely loses his whole army. Joseph Mauer's Union Division gets within a stone's throw of his only retreat route back out of the town. And if he cuts that, it's, there is no Bennett place. The Confederate Army is done for on March 21st. So March 19th was the critical chance in the campaign for Johnson to destroy one wing of Sherman's army. And then from there, who knows what he would have been able to do. It would even in the set less than he nods little by little. Um, because certainly the rest of Sherman's forces are converging quickly, but they're not there. That's an interesting point. The uh, I, I've argued elsewhere that you don't see armies destroyed on the Civil War battlefield. They might get captured, but uh, they can always recover after a defeat. But that's almost always when they're on their home territory, or at least where there's a clear route back, say from Gettysburg back to Virginia, but if Sherman suffered a real calamity on the battlefield, I, I suppose he could retreat to the coast and, and, and find safety there. But he's not uh, – but he's really a long way – I mean, he has no, no tether to the north at all uh, uh, by that time. So yeah. interesting to think what might have happened. Oh. Now, you, you – oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. And, and, and I'm complete with that. Uh, is you've got one of the be- – on the Confederate side, one of the better – our best cavalry commander still alive in the west of the or east of the Mississippi River in Wade Hampton, and he's there and he is fighting with a vengeance because he's seen what they did to his native South Carolina. I mean, he surprised Colonel um, Patrick there at the Monroe's Crossroads, and so who knows what he would have been able to do with, I mean, the limited cavalry he had, but he at least had the aura of dependability. You mentioned uh, Mauer's charge uh, at Bentonville where he breaks through the Confederate line and is uh, not very distant at all from the one bridge that Johnston has as a retreat route. And that's an intriguing counterfactual in the other direction, not what could Johnston do, but 
what if Johnson had been thoroughly defeated sooner? Uh, you suggested maybe there's no Bennett place. Uh, there's a section in your book, and you've got some uh, contributors who add to this uh, book. Uh, I think it uh, uh, where where you speculate on what might happen if the uh, uh, if if the battle had gone differently. It's Robert Dunkerley's uh, chapter. It says maybe if if Johnson is destroyed, then Lee doesn't even try to get to Appomattox. Yes, I mean, and uh, it's it's a complete uh, checkmate. I mean, and if Johnson's destroyed, I mean, the one, I and mean, I, I believe that Lee, I mean, is looking. John, that's the last card, the last fantasy of trying to continue the war. Is that if we can combine, we have a little bit of a chance, maybe a 16 seed over a one seed in the NCAA basketball <laughs> tournament, but we have a chance if we right. can combine. There's that glimmer of hope. But if Johnson's army is destroyed, then does Lee's army, what type of morale would Lee's army have? Because, I mean, they're holding out hope that we can get to Johnston or get out of this trap and continue the war. Maybe Lee's army disintegrates more than it did on the way to Appomattox. That it certainly it is food for thought because typically the, the the hypotheticals involving Johnston are what you know what could he have done could he have won in some way but the thought that the Union could have won the Sherman afterwards says you know he he, he should have been more aggressive uh, he could have broken the Confederate Army permanently and then you don't have as you say the retreat to Appomattox uh, you know possibly it changes. The, the whole dynamic and, and the, the great what if in all American history, perhaps there's no assassination uh, if, if the war has already turned out differently. But, uh, you know, we can't really know this. It's all all speculation uh, at this point. Oh, yeah. But, uh, sometimes it's fun to sit there for a second in a course go throw an environment and think what if. But, yeah, and uh, it's a tricky and kind of the road you really don't want to take too much because you kind of go farther and farther away from but it is something that we have uh, Dan Davis, Daniel Davis and I discussed was kind of the what if when you're on the field what if this would have happened what if that would have happened would this have changed the ball game well a great place for asking those questions is when you're on the battlefield so we're going to take another short break and when we come back I want to ask you about the uh, the, the tour guide element of this book and, and what we can see at these battlefields and how it helps us understand them. Uh, talking today with Philip S. Greenwald, he's co-author, along with Daniel T. Davis, of Calamity in Carolina, the Battles of Aversboro and Bentonville, March 1865. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Phil Greenwald, co-author along with Daniel Davis of Calamity in Carolina, the battles of Aversboro and Bentonville, March 1865. It's part of Savas Beattie's Emerging Civil War series. These are relatively slender books that combine a description of the battle or campaign along with uh, inst- guide, uh, guided tours, uh, tours of the battlefields, and uh, suggestions for reading and comments on uh, other aspects of the the campaign, really an interesting series, a great one to take with you if you're going to any of these places. I had uh, uh, Chris Mankowski and Christopher White's uh, Fredericksburg b- book with me last week when I was up there, and uh, they're, they're really a good series. So, uh, tell, tell me about this aspect, the, the touring the battlefields. Obviously, as somebody who's been in public history and, and on battlefields you you recognize its importance what 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 can someone get from going to say bentonville that they can't get from reading your book they, what you get is uh, on the battlefield is you get the uh, this layout of the land you get uh, one of the things that i've always tried to provide with these battlefield tours and the books is that when we look at a map of a battlefield or you look at even the park service brochure of Gettysburg or Antietam, for instance, you see things from a bird's eye view. And it'd have been great if Joseph Johnston and William Sherman had a bird's eye view of the entire battlefield and where each unit was lined up. But they don't. They see it from a horseback level or they see it from foot level. And the contours of the ground are different. On a map, it looks like it's a street field. But you can even see a picket charge of Gettysburg, for instance. One of the fields we in our minds we say is a flat field. There are hills mm-hmm. and contours there that uh, yep. don't pick up. And that's what you get 
on a battlefield when you get there. You get to see um, what these soldiers saw. Um, now, of course, we can never divorce ourselves from the 21st century and encroachment and so forth, but we can get you back on what this seemingly open field really signifies and what these trenchments are still, in some places, three, four feet deep, what they meant, the protection of one man's life, one man's chance to get back to his family or to survive the fight again. And so those are what you get uh, on the battlefield. Furthermore, on these battlefields where there are less monuments, you get more when you can get the entrenchments, you can get these uh, artillery emplacements, you get something more important. As Eric Campbell, the chief historian at Cedar Creek Battlefield, says these are primary monuments because they're built by the men themselves during the time of the battle and not coming back later as granite and placing where they believe or where they remember they fought. So, yeah, at Gettysburg, you, 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 there are monuments everywhere. Uh, at Bentonville, what will are there a lot of monuments? What will the visitors see? Or do they mostly see farms as it looked in 1865? You see uh, a mixture. There is uh, a few monuments there. Um, so they are um, um, not to the level of Gettysburg uh, or anything like that. I think Gettysburg and Vicksburg kind of take the cake for how many monuments per square inch or one out of a uh, battlefield. So you get a few monuments. You get uh, They've done a great job uh, with some of the revetments and, and the entrenchments there, so you can still see some of the lines. Um, it's still um, out in the open, and so you, it's still very rural in the area. Um, you can still experience some of the um, same sight lines. Uh, the State Historic Site has done a great job of putting in new trails uh, from the two different times I was there and the uh, it took about a year to write the book. They had done uh, great improvements, especially as they come up on the 150th. Come up on the 150th back in March. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a cell phone tour, you know, you can take that uh, we allude to. That uh, you, if you want to use more technology, I like to try to divorce myself from technology when I get onto the battlefield. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, there's also now a monument to uh, Joseph Johnston also there um, on the field. So that's one of the uh, tour stops. I noticed there's a, a monument to the Union troops that fought there that was just dedicated relatively recently, I think 2013. My colleague and public history professor here at East Carolina, John Tilley, told me uh, he was here back in the 90s, and he said there was a proposal then to put a Union monument at Bentonville because there were none. All the monuments were to Confederate generals or units. And when it was proposed to put a Union one up, there was a outcry uh, among North Carolinians who cared, and they, they bitterly opposed it. But uh, John said they're, they're, in their mind's eye, they envisioned a statue of Sherman with a torch in one hand and a baby spitted on a sword in another hand. Uh, that was their vision of, of the Union Army, and uh, they didn't want that. But we've got a monument there now, too, the Union forces, do we not? Yes. So, so tempers must have cooled a little bit. It has, uh, you, uh, and it, you alluded to your introduction as you go to the, some of these battlefields now, you um, see a kind of a, more layers of the Civil War um, history you know, for the subsequent centennial compared to the centennial or other celebrations where you're bringing in other factors. And some of these gentlemen's images has rehabilitated. Some of them uh, have... The uh, get the overall picture to try to look at different ways of the same battle and 
and Sermon himself uh, is, I mean, one of his unfortunate mistyped uh, Union commanders. I mean, he has deep and uh, strong ties to the South. Um, he also travels to Charleston shortly after the Civil War um, and is kind of perturbed at why the reaction of what it is uh, to him. And, I mean, it is uh, Sermon uh, does, I mean, wreck the economic and social structure of the South as he comes through. So there is those feelings as you keep your, the images of, say, the Gone with the Wind era where you see the line of burning and all that. There is There was a lot of animosity toward this gentleman who was so responsible for so much devastation. But I think now you see that, hey, to complete the picture, to learn the whole story, to incorporate other facets of history into it, um, it was time for a Union monument there at Bentonville and, and other southern battlefields. And you tell a story of uh, Sherman and Johnston after the war. They uh, they were enemies. Uh, they met at Bennett Place for the surrender, and they eventually became friends. Yeah, yeah they, um, both of them are um, kind of miscast uh, in, in a way by their respective sides. I mean, Johnston... Um, is a as deeply presented by Jefferson Davis and Zuborelli and some of the other uh, big components of the uh, what the South story should be. Uh, and Johnson's actually favorably looked at by Sherman and Grant, who said that uh, they were he was one of the most ablest military commanders they faced in the Civil War. And that's high praise for especially someone like Grant who tackled Lee in the last what year plus of the war. Um, both of them, and of course, Sherman, with his uh, overstepping a little bit there at the Bennett Place, is initially questioned by a gentleman like Edwin Stanton in the, the U.S. War Department about what, where does his loyalties lie in the craziness after the uh, assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And so both of them kind of uh, find comfort and aid in, in each other. And I mean, the tragic story uh, of Johnson getting sick at, as a pallbearer for Sherman. Um, there at the uh, which uh, New York City, and then ironically, both of them take opposite trips in death. Uh, Johnson goes north, and Sherman goes south. Um, their bodies. Sherman goes out to St. Louis, and Johnson actually goes up from D.C. to uh, Baltimore. So it's not too uh, far north, but it's <laughs> but it is north. Um, north. One of uh, what about the state of battlefield preservation? Uh, how Aversboro or Bentonville is? You said it's relatively rural. Is there much encroachment? Uh, is are there? Is the Civil War Trust active uh, in those places? What what? How do things stand? Civil War Trust uh, has been active in both places, uh, Aversboro and Bentonville. Um, there is. Um, you can see that where the Bentonville and my you know, things are going to move um, generally in that direction. Not any time, and maybe not immediately, but one exit up on I-95 now is a huge Smithfield, huge shopping center, and all that. And so, um, I've been going down I-95 for 15 years now, and it's just changing rapidly. And uh, I feel like in that area, so there is the Civil War Trust. You do have uh, a, a great gentleman there at. Uh, the state park manager at Bentonville, who's a big proponent, and he's helped. He wrote one of the appendices for the book, so he is very active. And as long as he's there, um, they have a great Bentonville's in great hands. Aversboro has a small uh, foundation that helps run them, and very uh, charismatic, very caring. But uh, Aversboro's also a little lucky because the battlefield is so condensed. I mean, it is all in one 
main road um, uh, uh, that goes through the battlefield. Um, there is, I mean, there's always a chance for modern encroachment, but both these battlefields are, if you look at the sum game of it, very well preserved for um, where they're at. Hmm. Well, that is encouraging to hear. You mentioned uh, uh, the, the manager at Bentonville who uh, wrote the section in, in your, your book here on preservation. That, that's Donnie Taylor, and he was just in the news last month. There are stories in our local paper uh, that he had arranged for the preservation of some uh, something like 88 acres at, at Wise Fork, which is a little bit east of the sites we're talking about here, but it was also a, a battle site in North Carolina. And uh, working in, in conjunction with the North Carolina Coastal Land Trust and uh, the, the Civil War Preservation Trust, the uh, the cooperation of groups like this is, is great to see that the different organizations are working together to try to uh, make things happen. We heard that last week when we were up at Pamplin Park and they were talking there about how the uh, the Park Service and the private park owners and other groups are all on the same page trying to uh, preserve these sites for others to see. Now, I mentioned briefly you have another, uh, I've got another book here in front of me, uh, Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864. Uh, This one also by Daniel T. Davis and Philip S. Greenwald. So you've got that as well. Do you have other projects uh, underway or uh, coming out or that have come out from uh, from Sarah Speedy? Uh, right now, the, the three uh, Daniel T. Davis and I have uh, co-authored three books: the Bloody Autumn on the Shenandoah Valley Campaign, Hurricane from the Heavens, Cold Harbor, the Battles of Cold Harbor, and then Climbing in Carolina. Um, right now, I'm actually uh, working on a uh, sole publication to fit into the ECW series. And right now, the uh, release date has been delayed a little bit because of circumstances out of our control. It was on Baltimore in the Civil War, but hmm. we're right now hesitant to get send people to the city of Baltimore um, to tour around, So, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because that was where I was born. And I've got very strong family ties there. Um, but that book is going to be published. Um, we just haven't settled on a release date yet. Mm-hmm. Um, then Sabbath, Ted Sabbath, has um, said that we've done such a great job with the Emerging Civil War series. He would like it to expand and to cover other American wars. And so mm-hmm. I have uh, taken the kind of the mantle, the spearhead, the emerging revolutionary war, uh, which will be an inauguration series. And our first book on Lexington and Concord will be coming out next April. And I'll actually be co-authoring that with Rob Orson, who is actually the historic sites manager for Prince William County, Virginia. And that includes the battlefields around Bristow Station. Um, and so me, him and I are kind of spearheading this new new initiative uh, for the emerging civil war and to kind of branch off into other American wars. Well, that, that's so, a fascinating idea. It sounds, sounds very much worth exploring and will give us new things to, uh, uh, to look at. This is not a question anyone can easily answer, um, uh, but I want to phrase it right. I don't want to use the word favorite. Uh, uh, which of, of the battlefields you visited or worked at, which one has the most impact for you? The one that uh, has the most impact uh, is the, uh, it used to, I would say, about a year, two years ago, or the beginning of the sixth century, would have been Antietam, because that was the first mm-hmm. battlefield my father and I went to. But actually, recent uh, genealogy history 
um, would make it now uh, the Battle of the Wilderness because one of my uh, direct ancestors was mortally wounded uh, at the Battle of the Wilderness on May 5th in a charge that was canceled by Truman Seymour a little too late. Um, and he was mortally wounded and died about a month later. And so for the 150th, I got to lead a program almost on the exact spot that uh, he was mortally wounded almost 150 years to the day. And so I can actually walk through the lines where he had marched out of on that night. And so going back there, that's a big connection for me now because I can literally stand in the last footsteps of that ancestor. And it's still the wooded terrain, and you look out and you think, He's attacking this in about 4 or 5 o'clock at night. What shadows is he thinking? What is he thinking? He's already had a brother that died of camp fever a year and a half before. So that's the battlefield now because of that family, the great connection. That, that makes a lot of sense. That would have that impact. Well, we are at the end of our hour, always too soon, as happens on Civil War Talk Radio. But... Uh, Listeners will want to get a hold of all the volumes in the Emerging Civil War series, but if you're going to any one battlefield, find the right one. Uh, the one we talked about tonight, Calamity in Carolina, the Battles of Aversboro and Bentonville, March 1865, by Daniel T. Davis and Philip S. Greenwald. Phil, it has been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, good luck to your Wolverines tonight. All right, go blue. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.